the audience has a different expectation of what is a belly dancer. So on the, on the boat nine Maxim, they want to see the oriental dancer with the two-piece bedla with the fluffy skirt. Hello everyone, you're listening to the Belly Dance Live podcast. I'm your host Jana Komarnitska and I'm thrilled to share a new portion of dance inspiration with you. If you are a new listener, welcome to the show. Don't forget to subscribe and receive automatic updates about our new episodes. And if you are our regular listener, welcome back. Please leave your reviews on whichever app you're listening. They really help me promote the show and spread awareness about Belly Dance art form. Plus, I really like hearing back from you. On this note, let's get to our today's episode. Are you thinking about visiting Cairo? Instead of staying at a regular hotel, check an amazing option of Yasmina of Cairo B&B. As a dancer herself, Yasmina opened her stunning home in Cairo to dancers from all over the world, where she offers accommodation, home-cooked food, dance classes right there at her own home studio next to your room, as well as photo shoots. You can take classes with Yasmina or other teachers, check her parties and workshops with live music, and ask her to help you navigate Cairo, for instance, to figure out how to book shows to watch or which sites and places to visit or where to go shopping. And as a professional photographer, Yasmina also offers photo shoots at the B&B with its beautiful oriental backdrops as well as on locations around Cairo and Egypt. Book your stay at the B&B or a photo shoot with Yasmina by contacting her on Facebook or Instagram at Yasmina of Cairo or by emailing her at yasmina at yasminaofcairo.com. Links will be included in the show notes. As I keep uncovering layers and layers of all hidden things that are available in Cairo as a part of our current uh, Cairo Belladance Guide Intensive at the Anadance Club, I still keep... uh, discovering more and more things and one of those discoveries was a meeting with amazing dancer who lives and works here local in Cairo and organized many different events Farah Nasri and I'm so happy that we recorded this today's interview. Farah is a UK qualified teacher in dance and foreign languages. She began her belly dance career when she was a college student in London and in 2014 she moved to Cairo. Today her Farah Nasri Dance Labs is the place to find the highest quality classes in Egyptian dance, theory, history, language and culture. She's an active performer in Cairo, organizer of very special course belly dance on location and creator creator of her training wear brand Ayuni, among many other projects. In our today's conversation, we talked about beginning of her dance story and how Farah was fired as a school teacher in UK because of her balance activities, how she moved to Cairo and how she started performing at famous Nile Maxim boat. We talked about different uh, types of venues and different expectations from the audience, uh, from ballet dance and from the show in general. We talked about her preparation for different shows and her experience of working as a soloist as well as having a show group as a support dancers for her show and we talked about her multiple projects including producing designs locally in Cairo, her brand Ayuni, how it started and what an amazing things she's currently doing with it and we talked about her educational projects such as her very special course ballad and on location and how different it is from other festival and courses because of the central part that she kind of circled the entire course around was the idea of filming dance videos and why is it important to learn these skills it's not only about social media it's actually part of the culture and belly dance environment historically and we talked about it in our today's interview and how the entire course is built around that as an educational center point and tool for ballet dancers. There is a bunch of links for you to check in the description in the show notes to this episode. So check Farah's events 
uh, upcoming and even if you're listening way after they happened uh, keep an eye for the next year events check her amazing brand ayuni it's uh, available internationally you can order regardless are you in cairo in or not and it's a lot of very cool things for you as well as a gift ideas for your dance friends and i hope that this episode also will inspire you and uh, will give you more ideas strength fire to keep dancing or pursuing any other dance related projects that are on your mind I hope you will share this episode with your friends. Let us know what uh, talked to you, what touched you the most. Don't forget to do a screenshot, share on social media, tag us. I always love seeing who is listening and reshare your tags on social media. And uh, don't forget to tune in next week for another portion of Dance Inspiration and Dance Stories. It's this time of the year. The Belladance Bundle is back with sale running from November 2nd to the 10th. This bundle brings together dance teachers from around the globe who teach online and it offers a unique opportunity for dancers to purchase a package of classes from not just 2, 3 or 5 teachers but from more than 30 instructors. You're basically getting a 90% discount comparing to the total price you would pay in case of purchasing each class separately. When else do you get the opportunity to try out a ton of teachers and subjects like this? With a combination of pre-recorded classes and scheduled online events, the bundle ensures that you've always got something new to practice and a group of people to dance alongside. No matter your level or the amount of time you have to dedicate to your dance at home, you'll find several courses and subjects that work for you in the bundle. But remember, you can purchase it only during the sales time from November 2nd to the 10th. Check out thebelladensbundle.com or find it on Instagram at thebelladensbundle to see this year's teachers and get ready to dance. It's thebelladensbundle.com, link in the show notes. Hello, Farah. Welcome to the Belladance Live podcast. I am very excited to talk to you today and thank you for taking some time in your busy schedule. <laughs> Yes, it's not been easy to like uh, find the time or a place, but we made it. So Yay. I'm very, very happy to uh, be talking to you today. I've been listening to your podcast, so I'm very happy. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, if you're listening to the podcast, you probably know that there are some typical questions that I ask. And I would like to start from the very, very beginning of your Belladance journey. So how you got introduced to it and specifically when was the point when you start thinking about it as a potential profession? Uh, okay, I've been dancing since I'm very young. My mom used to be acting and she was uh, adamant for me to be doing as well dance and acting and this type of things. So I've been doing ballet. Then I have been in um, a gymnastic competition, rhythmic gymnastic competition until the age of 14, 15, uh, when my body started to change because you need, you need to have a certain type of body for gymnastic, especially rhythmic gymnastic. And so from that moment I stopped and I started to look at a lot of other types of dances. And uh, my friend told me, my best friend told me, my sister is going to belly dance, you should go with her. I'm like, okay, let's try this one. I, I, of course, I knew belly dance. I know about Arabic dances. Uh, I'm aware I've been like listening to this music for like uh, when I grew up. I understand uh, this music, but to actually do it as, as a sport or, you know, because for me, dance gymnastic was very specific, a very specific training, um, very uh, high hours and uh, strong training. And I was like, okay, I'm gonna do dance. This is not going to help me physically. But actually, uh, from the moment I started, it really took over me. I loved other dances, but this one I really connected with. And uh, I also started to perform very fast. Mm. So my mom, when I was 16 years old, was bringing me to restaurants to perform. And then I moved to university and I needed some extra money. I did university in England. And from that moment, I was performing to make money. So that was professional. And at some point further on, uh, so I became a school teacher after my master's. 
I was teaching languages, and I was also still dancing in the evening. I continued from university to continue to dance uh, belly dance in different restaurants and clubs and parties. Uh, but at some point, I got fired from my school in England for being a belly dancer. Really? You wouldn't think this would happen in England. They didn't fire me. They asked me to choose. So thank God I was part of a syndicate. And so the syndicate, uh, we had this huge meeting. So with the parents' representative, the school representative, the syndic my syndicate, they told me they do not have the right to do this to you. And they took an A3 picture of me in color with some money here, saying that I was not a good role model. Although, I was, as soon as I finished uni, I got a job. I was an outstanding teacher. And I also became head of my faculty the year after. So I was a very outstanding teacher and I loved my job. And I was doing all of this. I was, and my life was crazy. I was teaching during the day and being a dancer in the, at night, but I could do it. But for them, they, think, they thought it was not, I was not a good representative for children. So they asked me to choose and I told them, the vision you have of me is not what I, what I want. I don't want to work with people that are thinking that I'm lower than myself, especially that I'm outstanding in your school. So I prefer to leave. So they gave me compensation because they were not allowed to do so. And at that moment, I started to just be a belly dancer. Wow, I did not uh, imagine that it would happen. Uh, in the UK, you yeah. wouldn't think so. And it wasn't even a religious school. It was just a public normal school. So, have you thought at that moment to come back to a regular job or it's for you was a signal like, no, I don't want to deal with anything else except the belly dance? Yes, that was for me my moment and I even said to my mom because my mom always told me, since I'm 16, I told her, I just want to be a dancer. She said, no, you will go to uni. So I went to uni, I had a job and then when this happened, I told her, look, this is what's happening. I still have my job as a dancer. She's like, you know what, dance. You can always be a teacher again after in a different country, whatever. You want to dance, just dance. Mm -hmm. So I just danced. And then at some point, uh, a, I was always coming to Egypt as well to travel. I worked a little bit in Charmel Share, but still I was going back to the UK. And the Nile Maxim uh, saw me and asked me to do a contract for, for me. I said, okay, I will come here. I will try three months and I will go back in the UK because I love dancing in the UK. We have a wide community. We have like, um, uh, Lebanese community, Egyptian community, Raligi, Iraqi, uh, Indian community. Uh, we have so many communities that love belly dance that we have a lot of work and a lot of varied work mm -hmm. with musicians, without musicians. The money is very good as a belly dancer there. Mm -hmm. So I was like, okay, cool. I can live from here, from, from it. I will just try Egypt just for the sake of it, like Cairo. And, but I never left and it's been nine years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, three months have transformed into nine years. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, and in UK, did you focus just on performing or you were teaching to, did you have a school or groups of students there? At the beginning, I was just focused on performing because I was so happy to just perform. And then I realized that I need to do more because I'm a teacher. Uh, I, I've been trained as a school teacher. I'm a teacher. I love to teach. I love to pass on knowledge. So I was starting to give uh, classes, weekly classes. I was also giving workshops. Uh, and after I created a competition called Belly Dance Trophies, which is not a competition as a competition, is a competition not about who is winning, but how much progress you make over the year. Ah, that's yes. interesting. So we had quarterfinals, uh, selections, quarterfinals, semifinal, final. And this was to um, help uh, dancers, especially in the UK. I mean, we had people from abroad as well taking part, but mainly the UK. Um, that was for them to give them all the different um, skills that you need to be a dancer in the UK, especially in London. And I was telling you, with all these different communities, you need to know the folklore of all these different communities. Mm -hmm. So the selection were about like uh, dancing on normal oriental songs and then in a group. And after they had some folklore songs and then folklore songs from different countries. And then they had uh, the final with live music. So, and it could, uh, it, the live music was, we had uh, uh, six songs and these songs, some of them were Lebanese, some of them were Egyptian, uh, some of them, but it was all in the same kind of oriental, uh -huh. so to not be unfair, uh, but, uh, so that was the final. And we ran that two years with my friend Nafise 
from uh, London. And after that, I moved to Cairo, so... <laughs> wow, but uh, it feels like you have a very unusual, different approach to all your projects, <laughs> or to right? many at least to them, <laughs> that I know about, but let's, let's go step by step. So mm -hmm. when you moved to Cairo, you start working at Nile Maxim, and Nile Maxim is one of the famous spots, and it's a boat uh, show, boat restaurant. But many dancers who didn't travel to Cairo, they may not know really like the difference between different venues and different performances. So in your opinion, what is different or what you, in your experience, found different working at Nile Maxim, maybe compared to your previous work in UK? Mm -hmm. um, what called me to accept uh, Cairo was that in the UK, I was making a lot of money. And as I told you, I was living from being a performer, which was great, but something was missing to me. I felt like I was just gigging and I was not being an artist. Although I was performing with live musicians and I was also performing like in Iraqi clubs, uh, Turkish restaurants, so I had to change my style of dance, I had to change my costume and I, I loved doing that. Still for me, it wasn't artistic enough. I felt like I needed a bigger stage, I needed something else. So when I arrived, I was super scared. I was like, what's happening? I'm, I was saying to Sarah Farouk, who welcomed me here, what am I going to do? I'm used to dancing like smaller space and I have to dance on this boat that has a huge stage. And what am I? I was scared and I was an accomplished performer, but yet I was super scared. And Randa Kamel came on my first day there to like, uh, to reassure me as well, to help me with her musicians because it was a band at the beginning. Uh -huh. So I was like super scared and I was like, what's happening? Like uh, Randa's dancing here, Camelia is dancing here, like uh, OMG, how, how I'm going to sustain such a show. But it was a good challenge because I needed to learn more. Mm -hmm. So what specific venue from the Nile Maxim is that uh, you, have to, um, you have to create a show. You cannot just dance randomly. You have to prepare your show with your musicians. You have a certain structure to the show. And what I also added was back uh, dancers, which we call Shabab here, uh, which is folklore dancers. Uh, you have also here a lot of venues at the time because I arrived post-revolution, like 2014, which was really the time that the entertainment industry was starting to boom in Cairo. So we have this club on the Nile Maxim, outside of the boat, you know, on the main big boat. We have a different outlets, and one of them was called Gubar. Gubar was a new club in a type of foreign club that wasn't here before, mm -hmm. uh, mainly uh, dedicated to um, a certain class, social class within Egypt. And they told me, Farah, you're going to have to dance on a bar, which is one meter large bar and super long, like over seven meters. And I told them, no, I came from London where I'm doing this kind of clubs and bars and any type of venues to do artistic things, so I'm just gonna dance on the boat. They told me, no, it's on your contract that you will also dance on the outlets. So I was one of the first dancers to dance on that bar. And that became that fashion, you know, and uh, we got a lot of backlash on the internet. Why are they dancing on bars? I swear, I, I refused. I refused, and it's really not good because uh, for me, I'm dancing in heels, so dancing on a bar in heels, it's not convenient. So if I could have avoided it, trust me, I would have avoided it. But this was part of the contract. And this what was, what, this was trending in Cairo. And this really changed the dance and the whole entertainment industry for, for the next five years after 2014. It really shaped the industry at the time. This, this owner, uh, Ahmed Wahdan, was, is someone that always have a vision. And you know in which business he is, you know that he has the right vision. He knows, he changed business um, activities. Mm -hmm. This time that he was doing business with clubs and with belly dancers is because he knew that this was trending. And he was right. This has been booming after since then. Now, thank God for that. Club owners realized that we need a bigger stage than a bar. And now we went from pre-COVID to normal small stages to like uh, maybe two meters, to over two meters, or 
And now we have these huge stages post-COVID with balconies and glass balconies and huge, huge venues. So again, we have to adapt our dance and the music and everything and our movement and our costumes to these types of venues. So Cairo is super versatile. I think that's why I never went back to London mm -hmm. because I was always challenged to do something new, to learn something new, to do more. Mm. That's interesting. It's interesting to hear the, that there are two basically uh, new trends that happen at the same time, or I would even say three, the one that we didn't mention, but one it's uh, like post-revolution popularity of clubs in a Western format. They're all still like with a lot of Arabic, uh, Egyptian feel, but it's the format itself. It's, uh, it's a Western thing that starts booming. Then this new trend of performing on a bar. And I don't know if it used to be before, but the, even the fact that uh, now one venue, it's actually almost never like just one venue. It's like the same boat. It's like a restaurant or any boat, not necessarily now, Maxim, but many of the boats, now boats, it's a, Boat restaurant, like the traditional, let's say, known or traditional for a couple decades at least <laughs> time. And then the same boat on the next floor or above or downstairs will have a bar. And then another floor will be a nightclub. And it's kind of the same venue, but it's different venues. And this trend of dancing on a bar, which is very limited stage, it's elevated, it's not safe for dancers, not even talking about, you know, how it looks and uh, whatever you're saying about backlash on social media and prestige or whatever, but it just, by definition, it's kind of unsafe, let's say, but it became trendy. And then also another trend that has happened is that a lot of venues were asking dancers to dance to recorded music, which was all combined and kind of went all together. <laughs> Yes, post-revolution was really uh, the, the booming of Egypt, and Egypt changed a lot. And as you say, this venue, to be honest, they have to make, they lost a lot of money during revolution. Post-revolution, they have to make money. They have to open outlets, and they have to get the economy going. So they have, they have this whole, this huge venue. Let's make the most of it. Let's make different outlets within it. But what is funny, as you say, is that you have the boat that is more conservative and that would be more family-orientated type of restaurant. Then you had, for example, Gubar, that was more for like um, upper-class Egyptian of, from the age of, at the time it was uh, 25 to, let's say, 35 years old, 40 years old, were attending Gubar. Then you had outdoors upstairs where you had actors and actresses, Egyptian actors and actresses from maybe 45 years old onwards. So it was more like a, of a resto bar because there was a high table to eat, not more like, not like a club downstairs. And then you had another club on the side downstairs, which the name changed many times, that was more... Um, uh, less classy than Gubar, but still a club. And then the club outdoors now has changed and mainly the, the, the customers of, of, of outdoors are now Raligi. Mm -hmm. So when you dance on the Nile Maxim, I danced there for four years every single day. From 7 p.m. to cruises or maybe one cruise and then rest and then Gubar and then the other club downstairs. And then there was another club in the middle that was more family orientated, but uh, it wasn't a club. It was like everybody was sat on low tables. And, but it had a big stage for some reason. And upstairs, outdoors. So from 7 p.m. to 4 a.m. every day. It's like five, six shows per It night. was crazy. But I loved it. And um, I had to change. I, I, at the beginning, I didn't understand that. My boss was telling me, Farah, you have to change costume for this. I'm like, no, I have my costume that I wear on the boat. No, you cannot wear the same costume on the boat and in this club. Then I quickly realized that I couldn't wear the same costume that I was wearing on the boat or in Gubar or in outdoors or in the one in the middle. Some costume would be like a, uh, you could adapt them to two venues, but some costumes you wouldn't be able to. For example, why is it just because audience will go from one venue to another and they want to see different dresses or what? Because the, the audience has a different expectation of what is a belly dancer. So on the, on the boat Nine Maxim, they want to see the oriental dancer with the two-piece bedla with the fluffy skirt and then folklore. So my first part was more oriental, second part was folklore. When I danced in Gubar, it was starting to also be the boom of Maraganat within the whole social classes 
Yeah. Not only some social classes, but the whole social classes started to like Maraganat and they were expecting the belly dancers to also dance on Maraganat. Dancing Maraganat on a bar with a fluffy skirt, it's not happening. <laughs> so that's why we started to wear lycra and shorter skirts. Ah, that's right. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a practical reason it's of a practical becoming, that became a fashion of short yes. skirts in Egypt that everywhere here yes, now. Yes, because it just, we could just couldn't dance Maraganat. And at the beginning of Maraganat, it was still the Maraganat that looked like pre-revolution Maraganat, because post-revolution Maraganat or Maraganat nowadays is mixed with pop. Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, a bit more like a funky, but the previous one is like Misharo, Misharo, ta -na 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 -na. so it was very hardcore Maraganat. So, and then it started to change with the song La Ala, which started to be a bit more melodious. And then so the movement that we were making on this type of Maraganat were uh, like we could adapt some costume to it. Mm -hmm. So we could have a long lycra skirt rather than a short lycra skirt. Uh, so this type and the, the type of as well, uh, when you dance uh, for the um, the actors and actresses upstairs, you needed to really like uh, have a very prestigious costume, but still not too much oriental like the one you have on the boat. Mm -hmm. So it was really, it took me a little time, like at least it took me maybe six months to understand what was going on. How many costumes do you have in your wardrobe these days? I, I, I don't know because uh, I, I I don't count them, but I keep on making them because now I make my own costumes. Uh, so I keep on making them. I take, I make around four costumes per month. Whoa! Yes. Do you sell previous ones or you sometimes keep them and, I sell and them? Use them. Sometimes I sell them. Sometimes I remanufacture them because I, the skirt was wrong. I want it short. Things uh -huh. like this. Um, what I know is that on the Maxim, because I was at the time from 2014 to 2018, mainly the main dancer. The, the changing room downstairs on the boat was my changing room. I left all my costume there every day, all day. And if I had to go to change to go and get a different costume for Gubar or for outdoors, I go downstairs on the boat to get changed. And also, I was also having my, my shabab, my folklore dancers. I also got them in outdoors with me upstairs, which wasn't a thing. Mm. To have like a belly dancer and, uh, and to have uh, shabab dancers on recorded music it was some but i needed them because it was so crowded upstairs and they were look there there's a stage in outdoors which you start your show there but then they take you and they make you dance on the chair on the table on another one and uh, and it was egyptian it, it wasn't yet the haligi audience it was egyptian audience who wanted this mm -hmm. Uh, so I needed to have my dancers to be around me and to put me on the chair and to like, uh, you know, collect the money because it wasn't chic to get the tips in your hands or things like this. So when audience wanted to give me tips, which I was sharing with my dancers, the dancers were collecting them. So we were a team. So they then were um, matching their costumes to my costumes. Mm -hmm. So they had also their changing room dancers <laughs> with all their different costumes. Aha, uh -huh, that's interesting. It was amazing time. You were also mentioned at Amal Maxim, you had, it was not just coming and dancing, you had to prepare a program. So did you have like rehearsals with musicians? How often, like, did you prepare a program and then perform it from nine to nine? Or were you were changing it constantly? How, how did that work? How we that were preparing aspect? different shows because, uh, so for the Maxim, we were preparing show with live music, with the dancers and the musicians. And for upstairs, for outdoors, because in Gubar, I was dancing on my own on the bar mm -hmm. and the two other outlets, I was dancing on my own. But for outdoors, because it was actors and previous, like even we had Nelly. Nelly used to be a musical artist. She had her own fawazir. She was there watching me and I'm here with my dancers. And, you know, so we had to prepare a mini show at least for the first song. So we were dancing, preparing shows on live, on live music and shows on recorded music. music. Uh, the shows on live music, we were going in the afternoon. Like if we start the cruise at 7, we would do rehearsal around 3 p.m create the music with the musicians and then put it on the stage the uh, with the dancers. And my dancers are all from uh, either Reda or Komea company. It means they could create very fast and they could like, um, the thing with folklore dancers, how they choreograph is not like Oriental. It means they take uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, they count to eight and they make it fit the music. 
Mm -hmm. Whereas us, we are okay, and the music, the texture of the music is changing, I need to change that. The tempo is changing, I need to change that. Uh, the counts is changing. No, for them, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, they would make it fit anywhere. Mm -hmm. On any type. They will just change the style if it's folklore or if it's more modern style. They will change it, and they do that super fast. Mm -hmm. So for me, it was very challenging to actually like, uh, have to adapt myself. And they would say, okay, Farah, we do Skanderani. Okay, this is what we do. And I was like, OMG. <laughs> so I learned folklore so fast within these years because I had to. Mm -hmm. And then I was also getting training from the girls from Reda Company and Komea that were their wives most of the time and became my friends. And so they were teaching me so that I'm ready from this type of things happen. So first part oriental, second part folklore. And for uh, upstairs, we were doing pop songs, any trending song whether it's Maraganat or pop or a folkloric song that is trending again or an old Chabi song trending again, we were making this and preparing it as a show. Mm. And how often would you uh, change the program? Or is it was every day at 3 p.m. you'll come up with something no. for the evening? <laughs> for, the, for the boat, we would change once a month. We mm -hmm. say, okay, this month we're doing Saidi. This month we're doing Skanderani. This month we're doing musical, uh, like music, musical style like Yawadi at Il. Mm -hmm. uh, and then for upstairs, almost every day. Oh, wow. I was telling the guys, okay, today the entrance song is this because I'm wearing this costume. Yalla. And they would make it up on the spot. Like literally the time I'm getting changed, the guys are preparing what they're going to do behind me. Whereas on the boat, I have to be matching the movements with them. And also we have to match with the musicians. Mm -hmm. But for this recorded music, they will do the... They coordinate them themselves, unless when we do Dabke, uh, something like this, I had to be with them, of course, because uh, the, uh, it requires for me specific step. I cannot mm -hmm. be alone in the middle, uh, but uh, so it would take a little bit more time with them. Otherwise, the time I'm getting changed, they are planning the choreography. Wow, interesting to, to know the speed and uh, mm. the variety. And your program with musicians when you're performing with live band, did you discuss songs uh, in advance which you're going to perform? And was it like rehearsed? Uh, uh, did you, I don't know, your uh, general preference from UK experience, are you more like you know a choreography-oriented dancer or improvisation-oriented dancers? But in your approach and experience in Egypt, and especially when you dance with a live band, which you know you are dancing on a regular basis, so you do have opportunity to actually create a program. But did you approach it like, okay, this is a program, this is a set of songs for this month, or is it every time, every day, different songs that you were choosing with musicians? Did you do for yourself personally, like preparations as a choreographer, is it always improvisation? Like, can you share a little bit about that experience? Yes, yeah, sure. Um, to be honest, in London, I was always improvising. Uh, I was used to choreographing because I was teaching classes and workshop, and I'm a trained dancer and I'm a trained gymnast, so I'm I'm used to learn. So I'm I'm able to fit one style or the other style for whatever the moment requires. For the nine maxim. Uh, my emergency would be my emergency, which is always the same, and you keep it for years. But then your second song, which is most of the time a Tarab song, I have some prepared, but in anyways, uh, even in my emergency, I have some kind of um, choreography, but very loose choreography. I know at that time I will do that, but on that day I might totally do something else as long as the Saidi rhythm, I'm still representing Saidi. Mm -hmm. It's just I come up with new movements, whatever I had trained with the night before or the week before comes up on that day. So for the Tarab, it depends what suddenly I'm planning to do Aflela Ulela, and then in the audience, the family wants to hear Enta Umri. Khalas, we do Enta Umri, no problem. Mm -hmm. For the tableau that we have after, uh, usually, so as we said, we prepare one tableau for one month, and we finish the tableau with some pop song, whatever is trending now. So usually I was using any trending song, but if someone from the audience wanted a special trending song, uh, we would dance it. Uh -huh. No problem. It's, it, it's a very loose choreography. For the dancers behind me, their choreography is choreographed, and usually they have one dancer that is leading the plot, uh, the front right dancer, and the, the other ones are following him. Mm -hmm. So if they tell us, oh, you're going to dance this uh, pop song right now, 
the guys are like, okay, no problem. Because they have these sections of choreography ready and they fit it on every song. So as long as I do something else, they look the guy in the front right corner and they follow him and they, they can anticipate what he's going to do because they know each other so well. Yeah, that's a very smart way of mm. sort of structured improvisation. Yes, yes, basically. yes, yes. Uh, and you mentioned when you started performing in Cairo and most of the venues there primarily Egyptian audience uh, focused uh, venues. And now there are a lot of venues that are they have majority of their audience are actually Haligi audience. For someone who may have no idea, like what even you're talking about, why suddenly in Cairo, in Egypt, uh, Haligi audience and the whole venues are mostly focused on that, like where the trend come from, when did it start it, and how did it change dance and music scene? Okay, actually this has always been. All over the years, over the summer, we have what we call the Arab season. That's when the Raligis, the Saudis, the Saudis, the Kuwaitis come to Egypt to, uh, for their holidays because it's, it's, the weather is cooler. And the entertainment industry is different than the entertainment back in their countries. Mm -hmm. So this has been even uh, in the 70s, in the 80s, according to the different wars that have been, the, this kind of countries would go to have their holidays either in London or in Egypt. So this has always been, there's always been venues specific for uh, this audience. Um, but the Egypt, venues for Egyptian audience, they are working all year long. Just within the summer season, we have new venues that come up and then they will close at the end of the season. Mm. Then we have cabarets. We have cabarets that are specific for Egyptian audience. So Egyptian businessmen, for example, coming from Alexandria, having a business meeting. Then they go with the, their business partner in a cabaret at night. This would be Egyptian audience-based cabaret. But we have also a Saudi, Kuwaiti, Iraqi-based um, cabaret. For example, the cabaret I'm working in now, from 2019, is called Sunset. And this cabaret is, has Egyptian audience, but mainly Kuwait, a, any of the, of the Middle Eastern countries. Mm -hmm. And how dancing in this kind of venue is different than, for instance, your experience and working at Nile uh, Maxim and uh, other venues related to Nile Maxim? <laughs> Uh, okay, Cabaret is very different than Nal Maxim or the clubs. It's another type of venue, as we mentioned. Um, cabaret, you have a, a bigger, bigger band. So on the Nal Maxim, I had a band of from five to seven. Over the years, I was modulating. I wanted to have more drums or less drum, or I wanted to uh, get a, a violin or two keyboards instead of just one. On the Cabaret, you have a huge orchestra, around 20 pieces orchestra. And you can modulate your drum section according to your audience. If you're in a Khaligi uh, type of Saudi venue, your drum section will be bigger. If you are in an Egyptian type of venue, your drum section will be uh, even to your melodious section. Mm. Uh, because when it comes to Khaligi music, they want to be able to play their own songs as well, because it's on request. So on the Maxim, I would have some requests, but from time to time. Whereas in Cabaret, the, the customer is king. Mm -hmm. So you arrive, you do your first song, your emergency, or sometimes you just arrive on what they say, a song. Your entrance is song today. You don't know which song it is. It's just an oriental song. It can be a Shabi song. It's a, they tell you it's song. It's not emergency, because they know the money will be thrown directly. Mm -hmm. There's no time for them to watch this money time. People are ready, they are very hot to, to throw money. There's no time for them to, to stop them. We should not stop them. You mean like the money shower? Yes, like yes. That, okay, yes. this is cabaret thing. Yes, cabaret. In the Maxim, for example, there's not such thing. You don't, there is no money being thrown. Or even in the clubs, there's no money. Just in outdoors, there was money being given. It's not thrown. Mm -hmm. uh, so on the cabaret, so I will dance, for example, I do my emergency, then I do a song, and then uh, one customer from Libya wants a Libyan song. Libyan, very drum-based as well, we need to have a strong drum section to be able to play this music. The more the customer is happy, the more he throws money. Mm -hmm. So, and then sometimes for one hour I just dance Iraqi. 
It just depends. Oh, Haligi. So the problem in Kabbalah is you, you just dance one, you have one costume and you dance for one hour. You cannot change your costume. So sometimes you have your nice fluffy costume because you're thinking today I want to be pretty and you end up dancing Iraqi all night in your fluffy costume. <laughs> so, and yeah. how your work now is happening? Because you mentioned that before it was, you were working basically since seven till late night and almost seem like but it was like at the same venue pretty much but multiple shows of different formats and now you are working um, in cabaret but uh, i assume it's not just one show per night you know no uh, now i'm freelance so it means that i'm having uh, private parties which can be henna parties girls only or uh, private parties at home birthdays, baby shower celebration, or it can be um, engagement parties, it can be at home or in venues, and then weddings, and after that we go, that's, that's how your evening starts. Mm -hmm. Usually henna parties are early, and then we go into private parties, and then we go to clubs, and then we go to cabaret, cabaret, more cabarets. Mm -hmm. so, so you need, again, the same, what I learned in the Maxim, to have different costumes for different venues, I'm going with huge suitcase and we're not in the same venue. I have my driver, I have my technician to carry my suitcase. Uh, I have my manager and I have sometimes a bodyguard, depends in which venues we are. Mm, I see. And uh, uh, I also know that you are kind of unusual dancer in Cairo because you're not only focusing on performances, you have quite a few different projects. And for instance, uh, one of the projects, uh, let's start with this one. Uh, you have your design production, Ayuni, mm -hmm. which I would love you to tell how did it start it? And uh, didn't you have enough work as a dancer? You needed to add all this on top of that. <laughs> um, as I told you, as when I was in London, I'm someone who's kind of hyperactive. I need to always have a project and I need to always have a project outside of my dance career. This is just to keep me mentally healthy because the entertainment business is very competitive and if you only focus on this, you get uh, a lot of anxiety, you get a lot of like inner turmoil, like it's, it's very hard mentally to sustain this lifestyle. So in order to always keep myself sane, I always have projects on the side. On the side. Mm -hmm. For Ayuni, it started as an idea with my friend Amaria, who's from uh, the United States, uh, because we thought that COVID would be really like uh, close the country for a long time. So we're like, okay, let's do something to sustain money and to have a project to do something. We cannot just stay at home mm -hmm. like this because Egypt was closed but still open. So it means we could still go to factories, we could still go to the souk as you have seen a lot of pictures of the souk. The souk was full during COVID the time. The souk is market. Yes, yes, yes. It was full mm -hmm. for the uh, people from abroad were watching this in horror. You know, they were like, how come they're doing this? Uh, but the borders of the, um, I mean, the country was closed. It means the, the airport was closed. Nobody could come in. So actually we had less cases or less important cases. We don't know yet if it was due to the weather. Everybody has their different theories, but somehow um, we had less as well. People said maybe the government was hiding the figures. To be honest, on a daily basis, when someone dies here, you hear about it. Mm -hmm. And we were not hearing these many cases close to us. Uh, as having COVID or a very harsh type of COVID. I do not know personally what is the reason, but this mm -hmm. what it was. So actually the country got closed only for three months and the rest of the time we were performing. But we had already started Ayuni. <laughs> so we were performing in the sense that uh, clubs could not be happening in clubs, but they were hiring big mansions outside of Cairo and bringing the whole club there, so the clubs was happening in the garden of these big mansions. Wait, you mean like just repositioning or bringing all the potential audience? Uh, to bringing the audience, the DJs, the management, the, the, the waiters, everything in the, in the garden of a mansion. Okay. This continues until the end of 2020, and also weddings. So weddings were forbidden inside, so everybody was doing forbidden uh, weddings outside, so hiring again big mansions, a huge wedding outside of the, in the garden of the mansions. So our work never really stopped. We stopped the first three months. We stopped from March, and then after that, the whole summer, we were dancing. 
but we had already started Ayuni. And Ayuni came, um, Amaria always had in mind to, she, Amaria can sew and can beat very well. Me, I can do it, but not as well. Uh, but um, I like creating clothes as well. So we're like, okay, let's do something like, let's do training clothes, but let's do it differently. Let's try to like print uh, golden era dancers on it. Let's, we were coming to any ideas, anything that we wanted to wear, we were creating it. Mm -hmm. And that's how it started. Mm. And now it's been two years and we're still like coming up with new crazy, crazy projects. And we just released Oracle cards. Uh, we have new uh, embroidered garments coming because before we were ju just doing printing. Now we're doing embroidery as well. We're starting to do costuming as well. Look, it's just like... But it's not like you and your partner doing everything yourself. You're also working with factories. Yes. Uh, and uh, um, that's probably an interesting experience to do with uh, it all in Egypt. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, actually, my husband is also a tailor, so which helps. Um, and he's Egyptian, so which also helps in our uh, dealing with factories. We mainly work with small factories and mainly women factories. Mm -hmm. uh, we only do like small quantities, limited editions. And uh, it's been a ride. It's not always easy to get the product that we want. But then they get to know us. They get to know our expectations, even with the sizing. Egyptian sizing is different than European sizing. Mm -hmm. So when we were asking them for S, we were not getting a size S at all. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> after like having to remake the whole collections, then they knew what we were expecting. And now we still work with the same factories. We still have the same teams. We have different factories for different projects or different fab fabrics uh, because some work better with other fabrics than others. So we, that's what we do. We mainly work with Egyptian um, workers. Mm -hmm. Egyptian product, we don't print anything outside. Everything is printed in Egypt. Uh, the fabric the, is made in, in Egypt. We don't buy a fabric that is made from abroad. Uh, when it's cotton, we take cotton from Egypt, made in Egyptian factories. We really try to get the economy and uh, our system to be made in Egypt for real. Mm, that's cool. That's uh, another like you know side uh, and approach and even uh, uh, questions like you know to think uh, in your production system. And I know it's not only about uh, training clothes or anything like that, because even your latest uh, release, at least at this moment of the moment of recording, it's Oracle Cards, which mm -hmm. is very, very uh, unusual project. Can you tell a little bit more about it? Okay. So basically what we do as well, we want to collaborate with people that live in Egypt, whether they're Egyptian or foreigners. But we really, it's important for us that these are people that love the country as much as we do. It's not an easy country to live in, but it has a lot of treasures. And we only partner with people that have the kind of the same vision as us. Some people that really love uh, to be here and uh, to, to, to develop products here. Uh, so we partners with different Egyptian, uh, for example, we had um, an Egyptian girl that was Mona, was doing bags. That was her specialty. So we decided, okay, this is our Ayuni fabric. Can you make bags with it? Okay, we had another girl that did leg warmers because she's crocheting. Uh, another girl's doing jewelry for us. So each time we collaborate with them. We don't buy the product for them. We, we design a product together. Mm -hmm. And Oracle Cards, we decided to partner with Diana, who's from Australia but recently moved to Egypt. And she's really into this uh, spiritual aspect. And one day we were talking randomly, we were like, oh, that would be nice. Because we were talking about um, the fact to add a movement to an oracle card. Because some people have already done it, adding like different um, movement or breathing exercise with your oracle cards. That would be great to add belly dance movements because actually belly dance movement is very good like um, for the body, for to, to, to release, uh, you know, to open your body. And we're like, okay, let's do belly dance oracle cards. And then let's put a picture of a film that is related to the card that you're picking up. And so it just became a huge project that took us months and months and months. But we finally did it. <laughs> well, it looked amazing. I had a little sneak peek on it. And it's a very cool idea, like, you know, to have a daily... 
inspiration, encouragement, uh, spiritual boost or whatever. Every person will have its own thing. But it's also very cute uh, and unusual gift for both yourself or your friend. And uh, holidays are coming in just a few months, <laughs> you know, holiday season. So for everyone to take a look because uh, that really caught my attention because I saw the cards uh, about dance, like tarot or oracle cards, uh, uh, about like uh, feminine aspects sometimes mm -hmm. they are playing around but this one is specific about belly dance which is like you know a perfect uh, a fit for the audience like it's just uh, so nicely and so magical looking and as I mentioned I kind of feel that all your projects they are quite unusual you have a quite unusual take on them and I know you have one more important project to you, which is also coming up soon, actually physical coming up soon, and it's your festival, which is very different format than what we think about like festival events. Yes, actually, it's uh, it. I call it a course, not a festival, uh, because we limited. Uh, we are limiting the amount of students to fifteen to make sure everybody has the best learning experience. Uh, it's called belly dance on location because the aim of it is to not uh, perform at the end of the, the week like people do, but to take part in video clips. Because uh, Egyptian dance has always been linked to the small screens and the big screens. Mm. Uh, cinema and acting is very much part of the uh, Oriental Egyptian um, performance. Even when we ask people to perform here, uh, when you come from abroad and you're not used to dance with your face, the audience doesn't really relate to you. It's very important here that the dancer also uh, understands the music, feels the music, express the music with uh, her face and her mannerism with the hands, and lip sync the music. Here, uh, it's very important in the everyday life, in the Egyptian culture, music and singing, if you see even a, an advertising for razors is done in a musical style, the girls are singing and dancing. Advertising for butter, the girls are, or the men are singing and dancing. Uh, and everybody is very expressive in their everyday life. So when a dancer comes from abroad and do not dance with their face, the audience doesn't really relate to her. Mm -hmm. So what I aimed here was to give a different experience to the dancers from abroad to really get the possibility to connect with the audience and to understand in depth uh, the Egyptian dance. So that not only that I don't aim for them to dance like an Egyptian, I, dance, I aim for them to dance like themselves, understanding Egyptian culture. So it's like, there's a slight nuance to it. I don't want them to be someone different. Uh, that's why we have in this course, we have acting classes and social media classes because your persona on social media is different than your persona on stage or your persona in front of a camera. So in the video clips, the skills that I require are different than the skills when you're performing live on stage. Mm -hmm. And we are getting the dancers to be trained in a very round manner. Like it means that everything is linked to each other. Um, we have language classes at the beginning because it's important to connect you do not have to learn the language and speak perfectly, but for you to make your stay easier and to make your understanding easier. So we have Arabic colloquial classes. Then we have lyrics translations. Uh, very short, it's always one hour, one hour or 45 minutes. Very short and sweet so that everybody can have a pleasant experience. It's not like a super heavy in theory, but it's here. And they also have a social context because the dance and the music evolves according to what's happening politically in the country. Mm -hmm. So if the law is changing, for example, there's a new law that you have to wear a shabaka on your stomach, then you will dance differently than if you don't have, do not have something on your stomach. The feel what is different. What do you mean by, because not that many people may know, what do you mean shabaka on your stomach? Shabaka is the net that you, uh, the law was implemented. It's been taken off and implemented and now it's in place, but we're not applying it. Uh, but the fact that, um, for example, if the law is telling you you cannot do floor work anymore, your, your dance change. If the law is saying that maraganat is not allowed anymore, okay, so then maraganat will not be produced. So it means pop music. So it means our movements and understanding of the music will change. And the costume that we will need for this pop music will change. Mm -hmm. So over the years, 
the dance is evolving according to the social context. So that's what we are trying to get the girls to understand. So I had the very first one, which was focused on 1920s to 1940s. And after that, we did a second one that was 1950s to 1970s. And this year, we are looking at the 80s to the 90s to see how the dance in Egypt has evolved. So we looked at the social cultural aspect. We look also at the musical aspect because the instruments are changing. The uh, input of the keyboard within, uh, within the musical band. Uh, and then, so all of these different aspects are put together to be performing and taking part in video clips of the era. Mm -hmm. So if it was, I mean, this year, for example, we're doing the 80s, 90s. So we're going to do the tableau of Fifi Abdu with the Shisha. We're going to do uh, Fawazir Sherian, which is the musical uh, that was happening during every Ramadan uh, with the artist Sherian. She's not a belly dancer. She's a musical artist, she's singing, dancing, acting. Uh, we are doing Emergency of Nagwa Fouad because Nagwa Fouad had, had a huge impact on belly dance. Wasn't, uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, wasn't she the first one who had her own agency that was composed yes. specifically for her? by Abdel Wahab. Yeah. And uh, she is the first one as well who introduced background dancers, whether male or females. Uh, she took that as well. She took this already from, Nagwa Fouad was an actress, she took this already from what was um, in the films, you know. Films were always like very musical orientated with male and female dancers. To put it on the stage, she was the first one. She really did change the dance. So that's why we're looking at this this year as well, because that's the era that we're looking at. Mm. Yeah, that's very unusual, like course and approach, not only in Egypt, uh, from all the events that I have attended so far, like yours sounds very different, but even worldwide, it's more like, you know, it's a different um, perspective and I think goal-oriented training, because it's not about necessarily performing on stage, either CD or competition or live music, and it's not something you prepare in advance, it's more like dancing in a different video clips that you are preparing and learning and learning how to work with a group, but probably also as a soloist some parts yes. too. And uh, it's the whole week of experience, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and here in Cairo, combining with all different other elements and social elements. So this event is coming up uh, pretty soon, but there's still, I don't know if it's already sold out, or there's still a couple spots for people to jump in. But we still, yes, we have still a, a few couples of spots, but also we open this, um, this event to local dancers. Because I know sometimes festivals, the Egyptian dancers cannot afford to attend festivals. Or even dancers that are not Egyptian, but living here with the money if you earn in Egyptian pound, you cannot necessarily afford to go and pay a class in dollars. So we've created, even already in 2019, this different uh, price list for the resident of uh, Egypt or nationals of Egypt. So the girls can attend, so we have a limited spot, and we, but we keep it open for girls that are local. Mm -hmm. to give the opportunity to everyone to take part, to take part in video clips, to get to know a, a crew because it's important in your career. Because the crew I'm using is actually the crew that is making the, the, the videos for uh, Muslim, Hassan Shakush, Omar Kamel. This is the same crew. This is a professional That's crew. That's an experience yes. and opportunity. So yeah. it's good for people to get to know people from the industry. Uh, I'm, I'm really not the, in my head, I know people would say, oh, is she not afraid of competition? In my head, everything is in the hands of God. If God wanted me to do this, he would want me to do this. If God wanted this person to do this, he would give this person to do this. What's important to me is that dancers get the best experience and they get as much opportunities as they can. And then whatever happens, happens. It's, uh, I will still be Farah, even if someone else is doing a video clip, you know, like, um, uh, because I've been in competition since I'm very small, I learned how to sustain uh, and to keep uh, your cool in a competitive environment. Mm -hmm. That's why, I, again, I have all this project on the side <laughs> to focus on something else. <laughs> I don't know if I may be missing any other projects <laughs> or things uh, that you're doing. We have something new now that is called Belly Dance on Vacation. Okay. Which basically, uh, because Belly Dance on Location is very Cairo-based, what we do, we uh, organize these mini trips within Egypt. 
So we went to Marsa Matrur, to the beach, we went to Siwa, uh, we went to Alexandria, Aswan, Luxor. We organized these mini trips either during the year when people request from, from us, we organize for them, or just before or just after the course. Mm -hmm. So this year we're going to Siwa to uh, experience the magic of Siwa, it's a beautiful oasis, and also to experience the music there and the dance there. So we don't necessarily uh, have a full, it's more of a vacation type of mode. It's not full classes one after the other. We just go on holiday, we attend maybe one class, we attend shows, we enjoy, we do visits, uh, museums, uh, mm -hmm. pool, beach, everything. So this is Baydance on vacation. So I think that's it with the project. <laughs> so far, I'm pretty sure. Next time we do interview part two, there will be many more coming up. But at this point, uh, what would you suggest for our listeners? Where the best place to follow all your activities and all your projects and all your beautiful dancing and your adventures in Cairo? Do you have any favorite social media or is it better, like, I don't know, websites, Facebook? What's the best okay. for people to follow? Uh, we are way more active on Instagram. For some reason, I just think this, perform, this platform uh, reflects better what we're doing, so videos and images. And we also, of course, have the website. So my Instagram, uh, I don't know if you want me to say it. Now. Yeah, like Farah okay. Nasri. Yes, yeah, my Instagram is Farah Nasri Dancer. Uh, we also have the Instagram that is dedicated to belly dance on location, and the Instagram dedicated to Ayuni and the Instagram dedicated to Baydance on vacation. But we also have a website called farahnasridancelabs.com on which you have podcasts as well about um, different topics about films and Egyptian films, Egyptian culture and music, uh, some online classes. Oh, I also teach in gyms as well. Uh, I teach uh, for Egyptian um, community in, uh, in different gyms as well. That's what I do. Yes, so we have all these classes that are listed as well on the website. So farahnasridandslabs.com, you find everything, or on my Instagram mainly. Yeah, I know teaching classes in Egypt, it's a whole different, like, huge topic, and uh, uh, it can be separate, the whole website, uh, the whole podcast episode just talking about that. And in general, like, your dance activities, you had many more things and insights. I know we just kind of, like, you know, jump from this and this and this, but I'm very happy that this hour like flew by so quickly so we at least highlighted the main like you mm. know projects and uh, it was already very interesting insight so thank you for sharing about your both dance experience as well as project work experience in Egypt and Cairo and it's very cool to see you finding you know your happy place here in Cairo with all this craziness and messiness but it looks like you're really enjoying and you're really into it so very happy to hear it in your voice and see it in your eyes you. <laughs> yes and um, I will include links to all your social media and websites in the show notes so for people it's easier to connect and uh, find it there. But also I would like to summarize our today's conversation, mm -hmm. our today's interview, hopefully not the last one. Yes, <laughs> I have other projects coming up but as we were saying. But even without new projects, I know <laughs> you have a lot more to say and to share. That's why I'm saying, uh, how do they say, inshallah, not inshallah, the last one. yes, no problem. <laughs> uh, but to summarize our today's conversation, I would like to ask you our traditional question, which maybe you remember from what you listened so far to the podcast episode, but there is one question which I ask every single guest, regardless of what we talked during the interview. And the question is, what makes you fall in love with belly dance, with oriental dance, again and again, so you keep doing it for so many years? Um, as I told you, for me, I think it was really the coming to Egypt, because it's challenging me to learn new things all the time, it's challenging myself, um, and I see different aspects of this dance. This dance is so rich, it's rich in music, it's rich in meaning, it's rich in culture, it's rich in uh, the political aspect of it. A dancer here, the belly dancer, status of a belly dancer has a huge impact each time that someone wants to uh, transfer a governmental ID within a film, they most of the time do it around the, the life of a belly dancer. The belly dancer here is very iconic, it's very mainstream. So it's, that's why the more I'm here, the more I discover, the more I love, the more I learn, the more I learn, the more I want to learn. 
And recently, I just discovered as well the, the dance movement therapy aspect of belly dance because I have a lot of students coming from for classes and I realized that they come to my class to actually being able to talk about their life and when we unlock, unlock this potential, we start to get movements unlocking. So I'm now studying as well in the process of studying dance movement therapy to apply it to belly dance so that so I'm telling you, this dance is never ending. It's never ending. Never ending. <laughs> That's a good blessing to have in the dance life. Yes, yes, yes. yes. And I hope it uh, continues to, to last. Uh, mm. Inshallah. <laughs> this episode was brought to you by the Yana Dance Club, bringing more consistency and more fun into your dance training online. Check it out at yanadanceclub.com, direct link in the show notes. And before you leave, don't forget to screenshot this episode and share it with your friends, as well as leave a review on iTunes or any other app you're using to listen to the show. The more people know about this podcast, the easier it is for me to bring even more awesome guests. Until next time, keep shimming and keep dancing.